Good afternoon. Welcome to Tom's World Language Cafe coming to you live from Fishers, Indiana. And you wonder where Fishers, Indiana is? It's a little town north of Indianapolis. Not so little anymore. It has 80,000 people living in it. So we're happy that you're joining us today. Thank you for listening to our program. I want to invite you to also listen to other programs at radioucs.edu and take a time out and listen to some of the great programs done by the students and faculty at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs. Now, I would like to thank Kevin Boyle, the station manager, for his help. Also, Marge Mystery, who helped start uh, the radio station there, who no longer is with us. And uh, again, thanks so much for being with us. And today we have a very special guest. Uh, and she's not in Fishers, Indiana. She's in California. And she's out in Salinas, California, not very far from Monterrey, California. And uh, her name is Christine Campbell. And we're uh, very honored to have her with us today. Uh, good afternoon, Christi- uh, Christine. And what time is it out there? Um, it is a bit after 3 o'clock. It's 3.20, and here in Fishers, it's 6.20. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to have been invited. Uh, Christine, can you tell the uh, audience a little bit, our listeners, a little bit about where you're from and uh, how you got started in language, um, learning about languages and uh, how to teach languages? Yes, well, I was born in Miami, Florida, and uh, got interested in languages at about age four uh, when we uh, were living next to a new neighbor who had just moved there from Havana. And again, this was in 1956, so this was pre-Castro immigration, you know, when all of the people did... uh, Uh, a a big chunk of uh, the Cubans did move to Miami, Florida. This was before, this was when Batista was there and um, the uh, neighbor we found out after he moved in had been a journalist who had criticized Batista. And so he then started receiving death threats and uh, he just packed his family up. He knew English and he moved to Miami, and he moved in next to us. So I think he was one of the first Cuban families in Miami. So at age four, I was playing with the Cuban children next door. They didn't know English. I didn't know Spanish. And that is really where I got interested in Hispanic culture. So your interest started there. Then what happened? So you... um where did you end up? Did you study Spanish a lot then in school? I assume probably so. Yeah, what happened is I really, really, you know, I did not know at the time I was a child, but I just really was drawn naturally to the, the Hispanic culture. And so what happened is uh, I went to Catholic school. There were quite a few of the Cubans then who um, had moved to Miami, and, and, and I just found that my best friends were all from Cuba, from Colombia. Uh, just uh, it just sort of naturally that happened, 
And then my father was with the airlines, and so we, I was able to travel quite a bit uh, on pass because at that time uh, the uh, employees had passes and you could go around the world uh, for, for real reasonable fares. So that is how I really got into, I think, uh, my love of languages and cultures. So it was a combination of a lot of things and, right, everything kind of just uh, came together for you. Now, where did you, what colleges did you study at then? Yes, I, um, right after high school, uh, I went uh, to the University of Madrid, uh, really split my time between University of Madrid and uh, uh, colleges in the United States, finishing at the University of Colorado Boulder. So uh, it was a uh, great experience to be in Madrid, studying there at the university, I went over with some of these Latin friends, with uh, my Cuban friend, my Colombian friend, and we uh, we enrolled in the university and studied there. And so uh, I was really back and forth between the States and Madrid, Spain, for about nine years. So I, it was really an important time for me, from the time I was 17 until I was about 26. Now, did you do, did you get your initial bachelor's degree then from the University of Colorado in Boulder, right? Absolutely. I got a, a double major in Spanish language and literature and Latin American studies. And then I did my master's. This was uh, Franco's Spain times. So mm-hmm. Franco was living and there were two programs in Madrid for, for foreigners. And one was New York University, mm-hmm. and the other was Middlebury. And so I went to the New York University program. And so I got my master's there in Hispanic literature and then uh, continued living there, and I was working there in ESL. And then when I wanted to do my doctorate, I came back to the States and went to Purdue University where I did foreign language education. And so, and that is where you uh, met uh, Professor Garfinkel, right? Yes, yes, who is our, your mentor, my mentor. Yes, wonderful, wonderful person, wonderful teacher, and uh, very inspiring person. Yes, totally. Uh, He's been on this show, by the way, and I need to tell you that. Yes, he was a guest. Uh, He may have been on a couple times. Um, One of the uh, interesting things, so you ended up in, in foreign language education, so did you then branch out to the other languages quite a bit, or did you pretty well, much? Right, right. Well, I was, um, I've always been interested in French and Sp- the Romance languages. And so in high school, I studied two years of Spanish, two years of French. And then when I was over in Madrid, I went to the Lycée Francais, they had a, uh, a, uh, a very nice institute. Uh, yeah, that's quite. That's quite a school place. Yes, I, I've been, yeah, right? been by there. Yes, yes. Near the yes. Uh, Plaza de Colón. Yes. And so I went there uh, just as a hobby, studying French because I just love it. And then at the University of Madrid, they do have something called the Instituto de Idiomas, huh. and you can sign up. And you basically, it's not to major; it's just to take a language. And I took uh, three years. Of French uh, with the Instituto de Idiomas in uh, the University of Madrid. So, um, 
So I've been developing my French throughout my whole life and then started studying Portuguese at Purdue when I was doing my doctorate, started studying Italian when I was doing my doctorate and um, as a hobby. And uh, so I've kept up my Portuguese once a week. I've got a class. I've kept up my French with the Alliance Francaise. I'm very active vocally. And so I did teach, I have taught ESL, Spanish, and French. Those are my three, you know, languages I, I have taught in. Now, Portuguese is really a, a hobby and uh, Italian so hobby. When you when you left um, Purdue, then you where did you go after that? You, uh, your first is that when you went to uh, the, the Monterrey? No, that was later. Was that right after Purdue? Um, well, actually, um, what I did was uh, my husband, my new husband, I had just married, was in San Diego. And I was looking for different uh, job possibilities in California, in that area. Decided to go out on my own with a uh, private business, which was a tutoring business in translation and interpreting. And I did that for, and I was teaching ESL at San Diego City College. And I was very happy with this new life. I was only there, though, for three months, and I got this job offer from the Defense Language Institute Foreign Language Center, which is the largest language training institute in the United States. And uh, at that time, we were, they were teaching 23 plus languages and had 4,000 students. And it was a very, uh, a very, I had applied a year before, but the government worked slowly at times and so, I had forgotten about applying. And so suddenly I get this job offer and I called our mentor, uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, and I said, uh, I have this offer, but I'm all set up here in San Diego. So what do you think? He said, you must take it. I don't know what it will do to your marriage, but you must take it. And so my husband would advise me to call Alan, actually, to get information. He knew Alan. Um, and I decided, okay, I'm going to take this job. And it was up in San Francisco. There was a branch there at the time. But the main, main center uh, is uh, is in Monterey. They they did close the, the uh, San Francisco branch. So that's how I ended up at the Defense Language Institute for Language Center. Now, so that that has been a while, right? Uh, a while back when you yes. first started. Um, actually, I just retired from there after 30 years. So it must have been... 1987 in that zone? You are, I, how do you know that? Absolutely. Well, it was 1987? I'm, I'm just, I was always good at math. <laughs> it's my number. You're obviously. Yeah. So, you didn't know some of the details there and you got, you got the, uh, the year perfectly. So, so you went out there in 1987, you yes. taught for quite a while, but then you got into yes. administration, right? Yes, I went. I was doing teaching, and then had an opportunity to work in the assessment world, developing standardized tests for a language for the federal government, and all at all in Monterey. And then uh, went into um, teacher education and manage, and uh, basically was a dean of the Arabic school. There were two schools at the time. Now there, uh, there were three. Then now back to two. 
anyway, I was dean and then became assistant provost and then associate provost. So I worked my way up, um, but I was teaching continuously through opportunities to teach faculty and students. So, um, so you, mixture, you, mixture. you were very busy those 30 years, right? You yes. didn't take much time <laughs> off. No, that's amazing. Um, you just, re and I just remember this, this really goes back a long time too. Um, I remember it was, um, I had called you for advice. Alan told me, uh, Professor Garfinkel told me, he says, I, I, I was doing this uh, project and book. It was a, at the time it was a cassette uh, for a company at that time it was called Gessler in New York. And it was a cassette of radio uh, broadcast, uh, little segments of DJs and commercials, etc. And I called you up and asked you your opinion on how to put the, um, the questions in for the listening. And I said, I'm, I was a little doubtful about putting the answers in the, in the target language because I always felt like sometimes the kids got diverted by the reading and not, didn't listen, you know, that, that it distracted from their listening. And at that time, you pretty much agreed, I think. Yeah, I don't know if you probably don't remember this. But you actually said, yes, that's probably a good idea to keep it in English, the answers, right? So they could focus on what they were saying, right? And then probably figure it out. Well, just to show you how good the advice was, the, 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 the book is in, its, I think, the, the third edition. But it's, uh, and it, we, we updated the broadcast a while, quite a while back. But we had radio broadcasts from the, uh, the Internet uh, programs on, in, in Latin America and Spain on the radio. So uh, we ended up doing the, the idea. We kept uh, finessing the whole thing. And it's still very popular. I just want you to know it's still does. It's very popular after all these years. It's probably been 20 years. It's just been on the market. But anyway, it was uh, your advice that helped us tremendously. And the teachers really still like their teachers who like the English to be there when they're listening. Because a lot of people have told me when they start reading, they don't know the words. They don't know the vocab, you know, to figure it all out. Unless they've had a lot of, uh, uh, you know, a lot of uh, language background. So our market, our target market was levels one and two. But it was a lot of your great advice. So I wanted to throw that out to you. Because oh, well, I remember you. you were very good at the, in that epic and that time period. Uh, with listening, you were highly involved, I think, at that time. Uh, Alan told me you were doing a lot of work on listening comprehension and, and things, uh, and testing, especially the testing game and the assessment. Right. So, uh, but anyway, that's, uh, that, was, that was a great help. I remember that, in which you've been kind to everybody in the profession. And the listeners probably don't know a lot about this, but Christine has been very, in all, great, very active in all the professional organizations. And it's helped many, many teachers over the years, and I happen to be one of them. But, uh, and I remember also that you always motivated uh, uh, Dan, my son, to, to go for his doctorate. Remember, I probably remember that. And uh, she was instrumental in keeping me motivated to motivate Dan to get my son to get his doctorate. So you have done some wonderful things for everybody. Um, now... So you have visited, what, what countries in Latin America have you visited then? Well, um, I have visited uh, Ecuador and uh, Colombia and Mexico. 
those are the three I would certainly like to to visit more. So I really haven't. Uh, I hope uh, I hope now to be able to in the future uh, do a uh, tour and really get to know some of the some of the other countries because uh, that's that's a weakness, you know, not having surely Mexico many many times I lived in Mexico for six months, but. Uh, uh, just to not have not had the opportunity to be able to travel around Latin America, and, and I regret it. Now, do you have uh, when you mentioned Colombia? Did you live in Bogota? Or visit there, or, or were you all uh, over? We, it was Bogota. Yes, we uh, we were a short time in Bogota. We were. It was a trip to Ecuador specifically, mm-hmm. and uh, and and so we stopped for several days in, in Colombia. So really, you know, I'm I'm. As I said, I regret not not having traveled around Latin America more. You know, Mexico or Central America being the mm-hmm. the uh, the country that I have gone to uh, time and time again. So, what countries have you liked the most? I guess España, right? Madrid and, and well, certainly right. Madrid uh, will always have a soft spot for me. I just love Spain, um, but. Uh, I uh, tried to travel quite a bit um, with the government uh, to Germany, and uh, uh, I don't have a really a special a special country that that uh, attracts me. I mean, they're they're just all so different, and and uh, except for again the sentimental, all that nostalgia for Spain, uh, each country has its uh, its fascinating aspects. So. Now, you uh, uh, have retired, semi-retired, right? Uh, right. <laughs> so, uh, so you are now a consultant, right? Have, yes. Uh, and still teaching a little as well, and uh, but uh, have started your own consultant company. Now, what have you? What have you done with that? I mean, is it? Is it? I would assume it's a lot of fun, right? More than anything. Yes. Uh, well, it's been great uh, setting it up, uh, doing a website, and uh, just getting involved in in the uh, public relations aspect of it, and doing a press release and those kinds of things. So it's been uh, it's been really interesting. Um, it is a full service language service company, so we do. Uh, instruction and teacher education and language assessment and translating and interpreting and immersions. And so up to now, we've had uh, uh, business with uh, American Council on the Teaching of Foreign Languages. And uh, I've done, I've been the consultant there, but um, uh, we have questions that come at us like, can you find us a Georgian translator and interpreter? (laughs) Georgian, uh, and not from Atlanta, not from Atlanta, okay? <laughs> and so uh, I uh, know a lot of people in the field, and so I search and, and am able to get somebody, you know, a Georgian translator, interpreter in 24 hours. So um, these are the kinds of, uh, we get requests of that sort. Uh, it can be any language, and I will be the conduit at these times, hooking up the different parties. So, 
And you certainly know what you're doing. You certainly have been there and done that. I, and uh, astounding your experience and things in all of this. And uh, uh, just wonderful that you're doing your company. That's, that's awesome. Uh, what about this um, um, world language study today? Um, what's, what's the good and the not so good about world language study? Uh, my feel for the whole thing is that we're much better off than we probably ever were with the way things are developing somewhat. But we also, there's a lot of work to be done in, in different areas. What's your take on all of that today, the, the status of world language study in the United States? Well, I agree with you. I think it's, a, and this isn't just American optimism speaking, uh, objectively speaking, I really think we are in a very good place in language learning because the world, uh, this global marketplace has, uh, I think, convinced Americans who thought that uh, English was enough that it's important to know about the language and culture of the people that you are doing business with. Even if the lingua franca is English, even if it is, Knowing, knowing about the language and the culture um, is going to help you, uh, can only help you in your business transactions. So um, in this global marketplace, we are now understanding in the States how important language learning is. And uh, I connect language learning with culture learning. I mean, we do not, at the Defense Language Institute Foreign Language Center, we do not se separate them. They are wedded, we believe. And from the first moment, what we try to do is expose students to language and culture, not separate it out and say, well, this, we're going to have a cultural moment or a cultural hour. But it's just every day mixing the two. So I think it's a very good time in our in our language uh, world. We hear uh, I know there's statistics about different languages in K through 12 in the high schools that are being uh, that are losing ground and German and uh, you know uh, people gravitating towards Spanish and but that's because of the practical considerations you know but gravitating toward Chinese. Uh, out here in California, certainly Chinese is very popular uh, in K through 12. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, certainly we want all, we, we would all always want language requirements in college, language requirements in high school, uh, but because we have a passion for languages. But, but, um, uh, you know, there are, there are those voices that, uh, you know, this emphasis on STEM and we know our, 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 uh, students today need, they need that, the mathematics, they really do. And so there's this, you know, greater emphasis on, uh, on mathematics in some environments and, but ultimately, um, we have to just continue to look on the positive side that, that we are in a global economy and we're trying to, most school systems are recognizing you want to create 
a full-fledged member of this global economy, this global community. You want to create global citizens of the world. And for that, you need some exposure to language and culture. Yeah, and it, it seems like perhaps that uh, at least going back a little bit, um, backing up on a culture idea that you talked about, I love what you said about how culture and language are one that you have to do them together. You can't just say this is going to be culture this week, but it's all really one thing, the language and the culture. Uh, and up to about, I think right now, again, the last year or so, all of a sudden it seems like we're swinging more back to culture, the importance of it. And I thought for a while, the last maybe five years, up until about 2016, uh, 2016, the end of two, we had neglected it again. You know, we got into all of these things about TPR and all these things, which which are okay. But I think we also kind of forgot about culture along the way. You know that it that it has to be still in there, and we've got to really work at it and uh, and things. I you remember years ago when we used to collect realia, for example. Right. And it's still incredibly important. All these little things of the culture and all these little uh, uh, things that we got to think about and how to incorporate it and how to how to talk about culture being life, et cetera, and, and, um, and language as well. But uh, I, it seems right that the last past year, we've we, all of a sudden we're having a resurgence of culture again. Uh, do you feel that way too or not about the culture? Oh, yes. And, of course... Uh for many years, there's been an emphasis in the field on use of authentic materials. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those authentic materials are rich in culture. Yes. So when a student is exposed to authentic materials from day one and is seeing and listening to what the natives are seeing and yes. listening, mm -hmm. they are imbibing the culture just yes. naturally. So authentic materials are just so key to yes. certainly all the work that, that uh, the Defense Language Institute Foreign Language Center does yeah. and, I, and the whole uh, profession. Now, what about this creativity? Because this is, comes up in the classroom a lot, and I talk about it with teachers and, and professors, different people. But this idea of creativity, um, is there something else sometimes that we miss, though, in teaching in other words, uh, when we talk about realia, we talk about authentic materials, we talk about language. But this idea of creativity, does that, where does that fit in here um, as far as the student goes? Um, for example, and in, in I'm sure you have experienced this, that uh, you have a student, right, who you think is going to be use their Spanish and, or maybe won't use it. And down the road, all of a sudden, you find out you've had students that use Spanish in different things and in incredibly creative ways. And uh, why is that? Uh, what, what is it, this creativity, like w with language usage, for example? Uh, mm -hmm. How does that work? Is there a way we can help develop that in the classroom? Well, I would say that I mean, there, there's no doubt that there are some people who are just, they have a natural aptitude. For creativity, you know, just as uh, for language learning, etc., right. they just have this 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 natural creativity, uh, and and others who are less so. Uh, but 
I would say that if you are, bottom line is motivation. In, in learning, if you look at all the research, that variable is continually the, the uh, source of all of this research because uh, we want to, in teaching and learning, understand motivation, motivation of, of that learner. How do we how do we how do we facilitate that learner's learning? How do we become? And this is something that we're seeing as a new um, development in the field in in uh, the uh, institute uh, in Monterey. Is uh, how does the teacher move from being a facilitator to an advisor, mentor? coach. The idea being that the student, the student him or herself is able to use different uh, kinds of materials 24-7 because of the internet to learn language. The learning does not stop when the learner leaves the classroom. The learner is able to continue that learning 24-7. And so how does then the, what is the role of the teacher? That teacher becomes more of a, in addition to facilitating learning, a coach, an advisor, and mentor. Giving, giving guiding that student as, because the student, we're trying to promote learner autonomy. That, that student, again, being able to go on the internet and search for some, do some research that the teacher has directed to come up with some kind of product, some kind of learning outcome. And so um, I believe that if there's motivation on the part of the teacher to understand his or her role and to help that learner as best as he or she can, then that creativity just sort of naturally develops because the teacher is motivated. Now you say to yourself, oh yeah, well, we're all teachers, we're all motivated, basically, that's why we chose the field. But they're working teachers so hard in K through 12 that there's not, you almost lose your enthusiasm, your motivation as you go day after day after day after day. But, but, but no, that, that creativity stems, I would suggest, except in the very, very naturally creative, from a motivation to search out new and different ways to teach, new and different ways to guide, to coach, to mentor, to facilitate. And, and, and how, do we, how do we find these ways? Well, through this, through hard work, actually. It's so, hard work. So you, would, yeah, you would say that there is... Um, there is then this idea of um, uh, when we talk about creativity, this creativity, though, does the teacher then creates the environment, right, where this creativity can just flourish, correct, uh, by, through the motivation, working et cetera. With the, working with the students, yes. working with the learners. Yes. You know, it's, 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 it's I think, this yin and yang mm-hmm. where it's, it's learners and teacher and the teacher's you know, paying attention, close yes. attention to the learners and their needs. And so the learners are, are providing important information to teachers, you know, about what's working, what's mm-hmm. not working. Yes. And so it's like this creative process together. Mm-hmm. 
Now, so um, creativity for the new teachers or people that might be listening to the show, uh, future teachers, really a thing to think about how you can put the, uh, create this environment of creativity in the classroom. And, um, and there are, again, thousands of ways to do that, but uh, you always have to be thinking about it, right? Facilitator, coach, uh, motivator, uh, and creating the environment, right? Just beautiful, right. well said, beautifully said, Christine, beautiful. And uh, always promoting learner autonomy. Yes. Saying, hey, you don't learn just when you're with me and we're all part of this learning process together. You're, you're, you can learn when, as soon as you step out of this classroom. You can do great and wonderful things aside from any homework. Right. Now, the... Yeah. Does a lot of this boil down as well to the uh, student-centered classroom versus the um, uh, teacher-centered classroom? Absolutely. And, and, and Absolutely. As long as we have the student-centered classroom where they're involved in uh, team teamwork, group activities, yes. et cetera, uh, yes. that the motivation and the, the self-learning that goes on uh, where they, they learn on their own as well, right, that they're responsible yes. for learning. Uh, has a lot to do with all this, right? Absolutely. Yes. I mean, Newman back in the 80s was was uh, publishing uh, about learner-centered instruction. And we learned so much from from Newman and uh, the uh, the pillars of of learner-centered education where where teacher and learner negotiate aspects of the curriculum. Teacher and learner negotiate aspects of the curriculum. Yes. That means there's communication between the teachers and the learner. Yes. Teachers and learners. And so that communication, so the teacher can adjust, oh, this isn't working. Oh, they're telling me it's not working. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, I'm not, um, and I'm okay with that. I'm not, I'm not uh, um, hurt by, by, that's right, kind of right. where where I ask for feedback and they say very respectfully, well, gee, we still don't understand how to do right, this. So right, right. And back and forth, back and forth. So he, he said, you know, number one, teacher-learner negotiates aspects of the curriculum together. And number two is all that group and pair work, which can be, if it's well done, it's great. If it's poorly done, it's, as you know. It can Correct. be a disaster. All of us have those stories where right. we gave the students a task and it didn't work. Right. You know, work. We all know that. But the, without the risk-taking, uh, nothing happens, right? I mean, exactly. nothing nothing creatively happens unless we risk-take, right? Uh, and that there are things that have failed, but a lot of them don't. So, uh, but what about this? Uh, so what advice would you give to the world language teacher, someone who's going to be a world language teacher, uh, how can they prepare? Uh, what? How can they prepare? And then uh, also, how can a world language teacher out in the field get better? Well, I would say that um, what we found at the Institute is that you can really promote proficiency growth through individualization. In other words, looking at each learner as being so unique and trying to reach that learner. Now, I know the K through 12 teachers who have 30 students in a classroom uh, have a real hard time individualizing, all right? Mm -hmm. but, but if at all possible, you know, this, this uh, 
gathering information on the learners and what their their learning styles are so that you can you can then give you know you can have some groups that you form and you give certain activities to one group certain activities to another again i realize k through 12 with 30 students it's very hard to individualize but that is really really the ideal is each learner learns differently so how do we how do we help each learner how do we guide and mentor and advise each learner when each learner is different in the way Which, his personality yeah. type his learning style his sensory preferences i mean whoa how how do we do it it's a big challenge for the teacher. Yes. It's a big challenge. And Betty Lou Lever has a book called Teaching the Whole Class. Mm-hmm. And that in that book she talks about how 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 do you deal with this? And then you've it, got so many different learners yeah, in front of you. Another great how, yeah, another great source is Howard Gardner, right? Howard yes. Gardner with with his book as well. That's a wonderful book as well. Um, the um, so here we are with technology today in the classroom. So where are we headed with technology? Because I have a lot of people who are techies. My friends are techies. Some of them aren't techies. And I have some in the middle, teacher friends. So it seems like we have in the field of teaching right now, I'm not sure, but I think we have people who are highly tech, tech qualified and love it and do it all the time, use a, a huge amount of time. We have other teachers who maybe use it 25% of the time, then we have some teachers maybe 50% of the time. So it's kind of um, it's kind of in flux, isn't it, the technology, how it's developing? Well, I will tell you, um, and it's, it's certainly um, not to toot my own horn, but just to say that um, uh, recently Hispania um, put out a call for papers Uh looking at the future of the field and I worked with a colleague and we put in a proposal to write an article about the future of the field in the area of technology Mm -hmm. specifically and we had to review all of that literature and they did pick our our proposal and so there will be an article appearing in Hispania um, this year but uh, what we um, are finding is that the learners, if we really are learner-centered, these learners are techies from the time they're born. Yes, that's right. And it's not it's not what the teacher wants. Mm-hmm. It's what learner right. wants and expects. Unless the learner, of course, wants something that is not going to be positive for his or her own learning. Right. And we know that sometimes technology is used for technology's sake, and it's a waste of time mm-hmm. in some cases because you go through a lot of hoops Right. To do an activity that you could just do face-to-face. Let's forget about the technology. But anyway, um, I'll just say that I think we should all reflect on Clifford, Ray Clifford, uh, who was uh, our provost in the Institute, and then he he uh, went on to be actual president. And uh, he's at, uh, at Brigham Young University right now uh, in the administration. And he, in 1992, said this. Because we there were there, we were nervous at DLI about technology in 1992 mm-hmm. and and its place and he said technology will not replace the teacher 
but the teacher who does not use technology will be replaced. Mm -hmm. I repeat, technology will not replace the teacher, but the teacher who does not use technology will be replaced. And I think that sums it up, that we have to adapt. The learners want it. And so the question is how to use technology in as effective a way as possible. Mm -hmm. Not a waste of time, not uh, not doing some kind of activities that are not going are not that effective, but effective technologies. This is the bottom line. How do we do it? And some of us old timers have had to we've had to learn the new technology because the learners want it. It's not what we want. It's what That's the right. learners want. Yes. Right? Yes. Totally correct. Um, this is a somewhat on the topic, but uh, 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 Juan Pablo uh, Rodriguez, uh, whom I mentioned to you, uh, that we do some work together. We did a, a book last year called Flipping the Spanish Classroom. And yes. it also came yes. out in French. Okay. We did it in French. But a heavy technology book, a lot of technology and things. But again, uh, judiciously done, the kids love it. You know, but yes. but again, it and and I'm a fanatic about technology. But you you have to be careful that you don't do too much that you lose the human touch, right? That uh, right. We, always we got to be thinking about that side of the coin too. Uh, and I always tell people when you go to Madrid or you go to Mexico or wherever and in, in uh, South America, when you talk, you can't you don't have time to pull out your <laughs> your smartphone and look up a word and you're talking to live human beings. So, uh, we're not talking to computers. So, uh, we have to keep that in mind, you know, and, but as you said, uh, it's kind of a mix, right? It's, it's that mixture and it's the right mix and you just know when it's going good in, uh, in the classroom. But it's, but a great advice on what you said. I, I love that quote. Um, so, uh, any advice for world language teachers just starting out? What would you tell the teachers just starting out? I would say follow your passion. If you love languages like we all do, I think anyone who's listening does, uh, language and culture study, if you really do love this area, stay in it. You can explore all sorts of different venues. If, for example, you do not want to teach, there's assessment, there's uh, translation interpreting, there's immersion work, uh, which is typically, you know, teaching, of course, but, a, but a, in, in a very intense uh, environment. Um, I would say that there is a place for everyone in the workforce who has this love of language and culture. You can find with the government, for example, positions where you become a culture expert and you, you, you are the person who, uh, who prepares la uh, online language learning products, for example. You become a curriculum developer. You become a, a uh, test developer, as I mentioned, in assessment. There are other, there's work aside from teaching. Yes. So sometimes yeah. someone might say, oh, I can't get a teaching job for some reason, uh, or it's not, convenient for me, or I want to branch out. I want to do something different than teaching. There are other positions available. The CIA 
the uh, NSA, National Security Agency, has put ads in ACTFL, in yes. the ACTFL programs. So the, the FBI, the FBI. The FBI. Yes. Yeah, the, there are government State agencies. Department, yeah. Exactly. Interested in people yes. who are interested in language and culture. Now, so, yeah. That would be my advice. Now, before we leave, I want you to tell the uh, listeners as well, this is rather interesting for everybody. Can you mention some of the offices that you've held in professional organization? You've had a lot of positions uh, in, in the language organizations. Now, could you mention some of those for the audience? Well, actually, um, American Association of Teachers of Spanish and Portuguese, I have been president uh of that organization, uh, board member, uh, certainly. Uh, also, I was the director of the National Spanish Examination for six years uh, back in the 90s, the uh, mid to uh, end of the 90s. I, I was uh, the director of that exam. And, uh, and then I've been uh, president of the International Language and Culture Foundation, which is a small foundation that recognizes excellence in the study of foreign language, excuse me, of, of world languages and cultures. Now, so uh, those are the two principal ones I've been affiliated with. Now, you were, you were president, right, of AATSP, correct? Yes. Now, yes. when you were president, was Lynn the director or was Emily? Emily Spinelli was Emily was, I thought so. I Executive thought Emily. Director. Right, right, okay. Um, mm -hmm. So, um, thank you so much for being on the show. You have been a wonderful guest and uh, incredible knowledge of language learning and everything about language possible, language education. So, uh, Alan motivated you well. Professor Garfinkel did a great job, and I'm sure he'd be very proud, and maybe when we get this posted, uh, you can drop him a line in time to listen to it, right? I'm sure he would be well, proud of everything that you said. So, uh, and, and he's well, certainly you're very kind, and you also. Uh, he can be proud of what you've done. Well, uh, look at your contributions, uh, he, many, many in to our field. Yes. So, well, you're I very kind. Proud, I Thank think you. He can be proud of both of us. Thank you. But he he was just um, you know great great motivator, and we're we're so happy that we uh, knew him. You know, and he influenced our lives and everything. And we thank you for all the help that you've given all the teachers over the years, and me included. And uh, uh, you've always been one of my uh, mentors, even though you may not have known that. I always loved to talk to you because nobody around, nobody else knew language, the language field better than you did. And uh, so we all have been blessed, uh, really, to have been around some of the great people that we, you know, that we were allied with and uh, learning about language learning, etc. Um, I thank you so much, and I uh, will be seeing you at the Indiana Language Conference soon, right? Absolutely. And then at, the start of November. And then Actville, right, in Nashville. Absolutely. Okay, I look forward to seeing you at both of those conferences, and uh, we will chat further, okay? And uh, thank, you so thank you so much for being on the show, and uh, uh, you have been an incredible guest, and I, again, thank you so much. And uh, we're going to close out the show with uh, Alejandro Fernandez, Canta Corazón. And then uh, all you listeners out there, be, be ready. We're going to have a live show from coming up from Brasilia in Brazil, another show from Athens, Greece, and this show from uh, Salinas, California. So uh, 
um, please come back and listen to our shows, and uh, they're posted at, at, at radioucccs.edu. So uh, thank you so much for being with us, and we'll see you soon. Thank you very much. Thank you.